Exploring Chiropractic, Episode 37, Chiropractic Radiology with Dr. Matt Skalski. If you've enjoyed listening to Exploring Chiropractic, please consider contributing on Patreon. Patreon enables creators to receive support on a regular basis. You pledge a dollar amount of your choosing per episode or per month, and you can receive special Patreon awards like behind-the-scenes looks, sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, and the chance to ask your questions on the podcast. Please head on over to patreon.com slash exploring Cairo. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Welcome back to Exploring Chiropractic, the only student chiropractic podcast. I'm Dr. Nathan Cashin. In this interview, we're going to talk with Dr. Matthew Skalski, who is an assistant professor of radiology and a musculoskeletal radiologist at Palmer College of Chiropractic West. He completed his DACBAR training, his residency in radiology at Southern California University of Health Sciences, and he completed a research fellowship at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine, focusing on musculoskeletal MRI. He is also a talented medical illustrator and senior editor at Radiopedia.org. In his spare time, he also runs a private radiology consultation service and spends time with his wife and one-year-old child. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Matt Skalski. I heard about you first from Melinda Novak and Savannah Shorts, because I was doing a soft little inquiry into what it would be like to do a radiology diplomat at uh, Western States and just asking them about it and, you know, how do you, how do you like the program? Are you able to do stuff outside of school? And they're like, no, you pretty much have to devote everything. I was like, well, but I heard about this guy, you know, edits for Radiopedia and he's doing all these other things and he's doing the radiology program. They said, he is not the norm. (laughs) He is an exception. And they're talking about you, Matt. So. Oh, oh, cool. Yeah. What yeah, makes I mean, what makes you huh? such an exception? Um, I don't know. I think you know all things with learning. The more you can, you know, cross neurons and kind of bridge different interests, you kind of just build the complexity that you can pull from to access knowledge. So I try and integrate all of my hobbies uh, when I became a radiology resident because I knew I wouldn't be successful if I kept all of my hobbies because I have a lot of them. Um, so you know, I was into photography before, so that was my artistic outlet, and I kind of just transitioned that into doing more like medical illustration type things. And that kind of brought me to Radiopedia because I uploaded a couple diagrams. The editor was like, hey, you kind of seem like you know what you're doing. We like your work. Do you want to be part of our team? And that in those days, Radiopedia was quite small. Um, well, I shouldn't say quite small, but it's a lot smaller than it is now. And uh, so, yeah, so I've just been with them ever since. They're a great group of people. And uh, that actually, I think, helped me more, you know, more than being a distraction because now I had mentors, you know, all over the world who are experts in their area, like, you know, that I otherwise would have been unaccessible to me, like neuroradiology and abdominal radiology and stuff, because we're kind of stuck in MSK and in chiropractic, which is which is great. But in a radiology residency, you're responsible for all those other things and to become, you know, good at them. It's good to have... uh, to be able to pull from that expertise that I was able to from all of the other editors. So when you when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, when I was 
much younger, I wanted to be a bionic surgeon. Um, I thought that was really appealing to me. That's what some survey I took when I was like 10 years old told me I should be. So I just kind of had my mind on that. Was that, that wouldn't be the Myers-Briggs. They don't go into that detail. No, no, I'm not sure what it was, but there was some program that I, everyone had to take and it gave you like a list of things. And, um, that was the one that stood out most to me because it like involved travel and had made a lot of money and it was like, uh, healthcare oriented and stuff. And I was kind of always a little bit interested in healthcare. My mom was a worked at the hospital as an administrator. Um, but she's a, the only, the closest thing in my family to someone in healthcare. Okay. Um, so what is a bionic surgeon? Um, you know, to be honest, now that I'm looking back on it, I don't think I ever really knew. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they, they do a lot of like implant uh, type of stuff. Um, so uh, kind of like more uh, difficult long surgeries where you're dealing with kind of weird anatomy and implanting devices and whatnot. Um, but I think the main thing was that I, I wanted to be like in, in be, well, I wanted to be a physician in any case. Uh, I think the survey when I took it, it gave me that that type of uh, physician over others just because of the long hours and travel because I was I'm kind of drawn to those type of uh, career paths or I was previously. But then as I got older, of course, I became more interested in like work life balance and whatnot. So yeah. um, so kind of chiropractic really uh, made that uh I don't know. That's kind of a, a benefit of being chiropractic, isn't it? That uh, you get to help people who want to be helped, not people who are dying. And uh, and that also comes with better hours and whatnot. You said your mom was in healthcare. Uh, what other influences did you have when you're growing up to, to get involved in healthcare? Um, well, so that was probably it actually um i don't even know if that that was a major influence i think i'm just, i was just always kind of drawn to healthcare, and i'm not entirely sure why um when i was when i was younger my um grandpa lived with us on hospice for a while and i think that kind of pushed me a little bit um because we had to care for him a lot and i he had some uh you know mistakes happen when he had gone to er and stuff and i think that maybe was a kind of hidden source of frustration in my youth because i respected him and liked him a lot as most people do with their grandparents and uh yeah, and actually, it's shortly after he died, I began working at the hospital as a as a certified nursing assistant. I took some college courses when when I was young and um, got that certification. So I started working actually in a hospital when I was fifteen years old. So I've been in healthcare for a while. Wow. So were you a candy striper, as they call it, or were you actually working uh, in a paid position? Yeah, I was working in a paid position. So yeah, working as 15 years old as a certified nursing assistant is a pretty sweet gig for, for you know, um, salary-wise because I was making about double what all of my other friends were uh, working so minimum were you, wage jobs. Were you working or were you in school full-time as well? Were you still in high school or? Yeah, I was you... still in high school. Yeah. So I would, I would um, be in school all day and then I would be in sports usually until five or six whenever sports ended and then I would go to the hospital and I would usually work the second half of the p.m. shift um, and I think when you're 15 they cut you off at like nine o'clock or something so then I would pass off early to the next person or someone to transition until night shift came on so they they actually made a lot of accommodations to have me there and uh, I don't know I don't know why they did that I think it must have just been to make my mom happy which uh, I guess shows how much your people who you know matters <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Um, but yeah, like we were we were talking about before the podcast started, it's um, kind of the benefit of being in a small town. People are willing to bend over backwards to make make people happy. Yeah. So where did you grow up? 
uh, a small town called Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. Um, it's kind of near the bigger towns around that people might be more familiar with because they have universities are Stevens Point, Wisconsin, and Wausau, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've um, heard of it. Yeah, and you know, the, the capital is Madison, so it's about an hour and a half north of there. Okay. Very cool. Um, and what led you then to choose chiropractic uh, out of all of the other options in the healthcare field? Yeah. So when I was in college and still working um, as a nurse assistant and I would go back on the weekends and uh, work, I would always chat with the physicians that I interacted with and kind of get their opinion on uh, and career advice and, you know, what specialty should I do? Uh, what should I be focusing on in college and all of these things? And all of them were actually recommended uh, other professions than their own. Um, so like the primary care would be like, oh, we'll become a specialty because we have to know uh, all of these, a little bit about everything versus knowing a lot about one thing is a lot easier. And then all the specialists are like, oh, yeah, well, I work all these terrible long hours and whatnot. And then, you know, I've been going to a chiropractor since as young as I can remember. My mom was taking us as a kid and all throughout sports and growing up. And so I talked to him and he's like, yeah, I love my job. You should become a chiropractor. Hmm. And uh, and I was like, wow, like you're the first person who is like confidently like my job is the best job that I could imagine and you should do it. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I'd never really considered that. And that's healthcare, And I like taking care of people and I like uh, knowing about the human body. So uh, I'll give it a go. And yeah, so that that I applied to chiropractic school um, as a, a senior in college, I think, or no, maybe a junior in college and got accepted and uh, yeah i was really excited and i haven't regretted it since great and where did you go to under undergrad uh the university of wisconsin eau claire Mm -hmm. and what was your major there um i studied biology and chemistry so those were my Mm. that was my degree yeah that's what i started with uh in my undergrad i didn't know i I knew i wanted to do chiropractic but i didn't know what the undergrad should be because there's no real guidance right Uh, yeah um, not a super popular area in undergrad institutions yeah so actually i think i started in biochem which was a huge mistake but i never actually took any classes that first year that were r- related to the major okay um, so what did you end up studying then well i started in information technology okay because i was always into technology Explains the podcast be, yeah yeah it does um and realized that i hated programming i just at least i at the time i thought i was really bad at it i just couldn't understand it i look back now and i was getting a's and b's in all of those classes which uh confuses me now and so then i switched to exercise science okay which is pretty common it's also i mean i think it's the equivalent of kinesiology in a lot of universities yeah um yeah. uh but you know had to then come back around and take biochem and organic chem mm-hmm. and those are- yeah, I, I made the mistake of um, really liking organic chemistry because I had a really good teacher. And uh, so I took some of the graduate level courses in or- organic chemistry, which it turns out weren't nearly as fun as the, the regular organic chemistry that you take. Um, so I spent a lot of my uh, senior year of college being extremely stressed out by those courses. Oh, they were so intense. And I often wonder why for chiropractic, we need to take organic chemistry. When I, So I ended up um, taking a a couple of general chemistry, organic chemistry, and then a, it was kind of a blend, a intro to bioorganic chemistry. Mm-hmm. And when I took that class, I was like, this is what everybody should be taking. This is exactly what we need to know because it's so much more focused on the physiology, whereas organic seems to have more application to pharmaceuticals and other such type. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. I actually, I'm glad I took it. I think understanding a lot that I know about pharmaceuticals and like, 
the purity of samples and um, you know the chirality and how it's difficult to get those things kind of explains the cost of some pharmaceuticals and their different interactions between generics and brand names and stuff so i yeah it's not definitely not knowledge i use on a daily basis but i i definitely don't regret having that background yeah after reviewing it a few times uh it, it really became intriguing to me um the one thing i i just really absolutely hated hated was uh the nmr doing the Oh yeah, uh, yeah. reading the MRI, those, right? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess I don't understand uh, either of them well enough to know how similar they are. But I guess uh, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, but but to look at those little peaks and to try to decipher what is in there was a huge struggle for me. Oh yeah, no, definitely. I think everyone. I I remember having a few cold sweats on exams trying to <laughs> make sure I was figuring out what was going on in those samples. <laughs> so then, which chiropractic school did you choose? Uh, so I chose Northwestern Health Sciences University. Um, I would have actually moved further away than that was the closest to me at the time, um, which was, you know, part of the draw, uh, which I think is for a lot of people, it's just convenience, but, um, Absolutely, yeah. their, their mission definitely fit with, uh, what I thought was important. I wanted to, um, to make sure that, you know, I was at an institution that kind of represented my values and, uh, their website seemed to uh, validate uh, my thoughts. And so I did a campus visit and stuff and um, everything seemed to seem to fit. So uh, I was happy I went there. What were some of those things that appealed to you? Uh, you said you kind of just, just reading their website was enough to see that it matched your, uh, your ideals or your goals. Or yeah, well, they things? definitely made like a concerted effort to say that um, they definitely valued like evidence-based medicine, but then also balancing, um, you know, the art and philosophy of chiropractic. Um, and so kind of making sure I was getting the full experience of knowing what, it, what chiropractic is all about, but then also integrating that in kind of with the 21st century, um, evidence-based medicine model, which I think is uh, critical for our advancement as a profession and you know, me as a person. Um, so those were kind of the things that I was looking for, um, to be priorities of the institution, uh, that I was going to choose. At what point did radiology become an option? I'm really, I'm really trying hard to avoid the pun. When did it, when did it show up on your radar? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, uh, I'm not really sure. I think about that a lot because people ask me, and I remember as my very first radiology course, them mentioning like a residency. And at that point in time, and even almost up until the point that I was applying for residencies, I didn't even really understand what a residency was. Um, like it was kind of, it's kind of a weird term, isn't it? Like you think of like a resident as like a person who lives in a building. Um, yeah, so, exactly. So yeah, so I mean, I I looked into it initially, and I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like that's a lot of extra training. Um, what does that really? What does that get you? Like we're being taught radiology now, and uh, and then you know as you go through those courses and you go through chiropractic school, um, my experience was that the radiologists seemed to be the people who were the most confident and uh, in their knowledge and most confident in their, in their deficiencies in knowledge. And I think that's, an, that's equally as important as, as knowing what you don't know, or at least having an awareness that you don't know a lot. Um, and, and so that kind of like objective look at your own mind, I think was kind of what it was appealing to me. And so as we went through the courses, I would say I was maybe a little above average at it. Uh, I, there's definitely people like who perform better in the courses than I did. Um, and and then kind of thinking of it from a tech perspective, I'm, I'm kind of a techie type person too. Um, 
that drew interest to me. And then as I got into photography, I'm kind of a visual person mm. uh, that appealed to me. And then the thought of being able to, uh, you know, because everything's digital now, being able to take my computer with me anywhere in the world that I want to work and being able to perform my job independent of my location uh, was a huge draw. And so kind of looking at that work-life balance issue with the kind of more academic side of things, it just seemed like the right blend. Um, but then, of course, I had to make the decision to give up uh, the clinical care I was doing, which uh, wasn't a small decision either because I loved interacting with and helping patients and having that kind of physical connection. Um, so it definitely was a trade-off. Yeah, that convergence of all those different interests uh, was really what drew me to considering it as well. And it just hasn't uh, fit into my my current life plans. Right. But, but the photography, the technology, uh, and I guess in some ways the radiology is a, a little more cut and dried than, than seeing the whole patient in front of you. Yeah, and, definitely. And personally that appeals to me. I don't do very well with a lot of ambiguity. You know, I work to get better at that, but, um, but to look at a picture and say, this is what I see. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do really like that. And the, as you mentioned, the digital, I've, I've been a big fan of the tiny house movement and, Sure. Uh, partway through school, I was kind of envisioning myself with a little tiny house driving around Europe with, you know, a computer and yeah. uh, a good display, being able to read images from wherever I'm at, up in the mountains or you mm -hmm. know, traveling the world. So that um, that definitely appeals. How how much of a reality is that now? I mean, you've set up your consulting uh, company, your your digital uh, mm -hmm. X-ray reading. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty big reality that, you know, the, the thing that is a little bit difficult with it is that there, you do actually need a, like a diagnostic display to read images, which it turns out, um, are not that small or lightweight. Um, and so like, I'll look at images on my laptop and stuff, but I won't generate a formal report that I'm putting my, mm -hmm. my stamp of approval on, uh, unless I'm looking at a diagnostic display because, uh, the contrast characteristics and brightness and all these different things um, actually make a massive difference. I, the students daily when I'm reading off with them, um, are they're come to my office and we read off the x-rays that they wrote reports on. And they're looking at my monitors and they're like, wow, like I couldn't see any of this stuff on the monitors in the lab. And um, and so like they had noticed just going from one to the next that like you can see so much more. And so in order when you're, when you're responsible for identifying pathology in those images, uh, you need to have that type of stuff. And so that be makes you a little less portable then because now like if I want to, you know, if I want to jet off to the weekend in Hawaii and I know I have to read some cases, um, I can't just like bring those monitors with me. Um, mm -hmm. So and, and so that's not just a resolution, but that also has to do with other technical aspects uh, like contrast. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So like when you go to buy a diagnostic display, um, like the minimum you're going to spend is, is over a thousand dollars for one display. Mm -hmm. um and and part of that is because they have they have different quality control standards but they're also much brighter so like my consumer grade displays i think uh go up to like like a standard uh consumer grade display maybe goes up to 300 lumens but a diagnostic display often goes up to seven or 900 lumens and that extra brightness allows them to display more shades of gray and things like that so okay um and then be able to identify things in darker areas without window leveling because people think they can window level to see all of the different darknesses on the image but that's not necessarily the case and it's interesting. I've been curious with with the consumer technology that's becoming so much more advanced. Uh, you know, I have a big 27-inch iMac in front of me now. The new version is a 5K display. There's talk about them coming out with an 8K display. So the resolution is there. 
but that mm-hmm. still wouldn't be enough to be diagnostic quality. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, certainly like there's a spectrum, right? So like those are probably pretty good. Um, maybe approaching like where you could read an image and, and make a confident diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but having the quality control that's mandated by like medical grade displays is, is something, um, I think is important. I, I definitely, I look at images on consumer grade displays a lot and like, so like prof- more professional ones. So like I have some Dell, um, like graphic design monitors that I spent a lot of money on, but definitely not nearly as much as a medical grade display. And, and those I think are probably pretty good. Um, but they're a little bit brighter too then. So, um, I'm not sure what the specifications of the Mac are, but yeah, putting them side by side, uh, would definitely, you know, be the test. I've read, I read one article where they had radiologists looking at, um, cases on different images and some of them actually preferred looking at them on the cheaper images because they are so much more contrasty because uh, hmm. the consumer grade displays kind of force black, right? So like when you're watching a movie, right. like you want the black areas to be black and whatnot. And so, um, but you lose the detail then once you force those shades and, that, and you force that contrast with like the pixel pitch and whatnot. Um, so even though the images look con- more contrasty, maybe like a fracture stands out, then the more subtle things maybe don't stand out. So there's a trade-off. Okay. It's interesting to me, though, that we we then sit down for our board exams and either have 30 to 40-year-old images, uh, mm-hmm. films up in front of us, or we sit in front of, you know, the budget mass-produced uh, Dell computers to take those exams. Yeah. the It's funny because the hard copy x-rays, um, those like the old analog films are the, are the reference, are the standard for comparison. So, like, the best displays are, are, a pro, are trying to, like, make the images look as good as hard copy x-rays did so um the 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 difference then is that the the acquisition of the image is different so like when you're taking a digital image you have better uh, you, you have a lot more data that you can manipulate to, to create an image that looks different than you would get with an analog so um there's that side of it and so a lot of people prefer looking at digital images because we can maintain contrast in like soft tissues and bone Versus in analog, right? It's all purely bent density based, and our, our film contrast curve can't necessarily um, expose soft tissues as well as bone equally. Whereas mm-hmm. we can we can do that in digital. So for that reason, digital is a lot better. But for the actual like display of the image, the hard copy film is still is still actually pretty amazing. Yeah, the resolution is, I guess, nearly infinite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, depending it's, on how you measure that. Now, uh, everything's going digital now. Uh, you know, I see more and more people on Facebook chiropractors saying they're getting rid of their analog uh, equipment. Mm-hmm. Most of them are just getting rid of X-ray in the office, just all together, and mm-hmm. sending them out to to. Yeah, it's expensive um, to maintain that equipment. Yeah, in uh, one of the one of the benefits that is touted is that digital imaging reduces exposure to radiation. But I've there have been some questions as to whether or how that is true, I guess. Uh, so if you take a single image on a digital, a fully digital setup, mm-hmm. is that more or less radi- radiation that you're going to get? Um, well, it depends. So the so digital systems can recover um, images with much less radiation exposure, but they still definitely need, um, need some. And so uh, it... You can get away with doing a lot less, um, but, there, but there is diminishing returns. So the, the quantum model in the image, the graininess of the image, will increase with lower radiation doses. So um, you have to 
determine like at what level do you say too much graininess like the graininess is inhibiting the image um but on the whole digital imaging has substantially uh, decreased our exposure um to radiation per exam so so that's definitely true um but that being said not all not all systems are created equal so some some film receptor systems that are digital or sorry uh x-ray receptor systems that are digital still require about the same amount of radiation as an analog x-ray um so it's uh it's a very heterogeneous uh kind of environment out there for for as anyone who's purchased digital equipment knows um there's so many options and uh so some some are better than others of course uh and a lot of that's tied to how much you're willing to spend so uh on the whole though i would say that it's going digital has resulted in a dramatic decrease in radiation exposure per image so because it's more forgiving uh, maybe each image is not less radiation but you don't have to take as many you don't have to repeat a study perhaps yeah, so yeah, if you're on an analog and you over or underexpose, right, that may that may that may limit the image to the point you have to do a retake. So yeah, retakes are substantially less with digital. Mm-hmm. But then also, uh, and so that's a portion of it, but even any individual shot, um you can use uh lower MAS on average than you can get away with uh on an analog system because uh, that's going to make the image underexposed on an analog, but but because the contrast curve for most digital systems is linear instead of um like an S-shaped curve, uh mm-hmm. you can you can manipulate the data anywhere along that point, regardless of how over or underexposed it is, which is why you can shoot a lumbar like film on the same as an, like an extremity. You know, there's not like an extremity and spine and chest cassettes are not all different um, because uh, there's just a, we have a linear contrast curve. You know, this brings up uh, the principle that we're always taught is the Ilara principle as low as reasonably acceptable, I think. Yep. Um, and or achievable. We're, yeah. Or achievable. Thank you. We're, always attempting to reduce the amount of radiation exposure that our patients are are given. Uh, but, you know, a paper came out a couple of years ago that I read that really intrigued me. And again, I probably don't understand it well enough, but it was uh, the idea of the birth of the illegit- illegitimate linear no-threshold model. And they basically went through the history, the story of how uh, this concern over radiation exposure with the x-rays came about. And the conclusion was that we don't really need to be as concerned as we think we do. Um, in that, and the author's opinion was that they may actually be causing more harm, uh, than intended by withholding some exposure to radiation. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that paper, if it came across. Yeah, I've read that paper. And actually, uh, since then, there's been some back and forth in um, letters to the editor, of course, because it stirred up a lot of controversy. Um, So some other prominent um, medical physicists wrote letters criticizing that paper. Mm, Um, Yeah. And then and then they responded criticizing those people um, and and their (laughs) and their thoughts. So, so there's been some back and forth, which I think yeah, is good. Yeah, so, yeah, that's good because anytime we, we open up those kind of discussions that are controversial and maybe the data isn't necessarily as sound as we thought it was, um, yeah, that stimulates thought and potentially can lead to um, policy change. Uh, so my opinion on that paper is that even if that's true, right? And so they're, they're, I think their assertion was that a lot of this data we got uh, for this linear model was from um, nuclear bomb survivors. And so they're at higher exposures. So once you get into these lower exposure ranges, our capacity to heal the damage that's caused by the x-rays is is um, enough that it can 
it can offset those so it's not necessarily linear at low exposures and and potentially even their uh, assertion was that some of the data um not all of it but some of the data said that actually there was a decrease risk so you actually had a benefit from getting a small amount of radiation mm-hmm. um, and there's been some some animal models which showed that like there was a couple experiments done on mice where they, they gave them very low levels of radiation and those mice live longer right. um, and that yeah and that's called hormesis but as from a public policy standpoint when you're when you're ionizing someone it, you can't really you can't really establish a safe threshold um, because there's there isn't a clear threshold so when there's not a clear threshold then no, no threshold is really safe so I think I think even though even if, even if they're right, even if the small amounts of radiation don't harm us or even only, even make us better, perhaps um, that's not a good public health policy um, because then then you then then where do you establish your your cutoff? You know, so like how many how many CT exams does it take to pass that threshold or something? So, but then yeah, but then there there also there yeah their other argument was that okay well our fear of these imaging modalities uh, that involve ionizing radiation potentially prevent people from getting the diagnosis that they need. Um, and so that's something to consider as well. Um, my, if, if I were going to play devil's advocate, then I would say, well, yeah, but also when you perform more imaging studies on people, you lead to more unnecessary follow-up. So um, if, if, if we're not being very objective and, um, withholding unneeded exams then we're potentially getting uh, performing exams sorry my speaker's going performing exams that uh, are going to lead to unnecessary follow-up so if i have an incidental finding for example that i'm not necessarily sure what it is um, potentially is something bad then i have to order additional imaging and that may not benefit the patient and especially if that initial exam wasn't warranted then uh then that's uh something that's that's actually harming the patient and the other side of that argument too is that uh, people often will attribute findings on x-rays to their symptoms. And there's not a good correlation between symptomatology and imaging appearances. And I think one of the papers uh, you sent me um, and talked about that is that uh, there's this thing called diagnosis labeling where people see see a finding and they say, okay, that's the cause of my pain. And then, and then that pushes them towards surgery or some other type of unnecessary intervention. Right. Um, so this is something that's been, uh, I've seen multiple articles come out. Uh, I think the one I sent or what I'm looking at now is, from the British Medical Journal, and the title is "It's Time to Stop Causing Harm with Inappropriate Imaging for mm-hmm. Low Back Pain," and this applies so much to chiropractic because it was the practice of so many chiropractors and some still to image every patient that would walk in their door. Um, and but it's not just chiropractors. I did a, a stint in the VA hospital, mm-hmm. and the the patients could not come to the chiropractor unless they had an X ray image within the past two years of their spine. Um, and and you can definitely see that. For, on the one hand, it was really awesome for me as a student to be able to look at so many images because I yeah, don't definitely. think we get enough opportunity to do that. Um, but I definitely saw patients come in who would say, oh, yeah, look, oh, gosh, yeah, my back looks bad. I'm like, no, actually, it looks pretty normal. You're You're just looking at it and you think it looks bad because mm-hmm. that explains things. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely like being a radiologist. Like, it's a kind of a persistent frustration of mine that I have to navigate um, the situation where I have a finding that I'm not necessarily sure what to do with. Maybe, maybe it's a, maybe it's kind of like a finding that I don't know if it's real or if it's an artifact, or maybe it's a real finding that I don't know if it's clinically significant because I don't have the patient in front of me. 
and all of these things. And then, so like, what do I do with it? So I have to, I have to choose what I want to say about it. So like, do I think, what, what do I think this is? What's my differential? But then I also have to, if I, if my differential includes something that's bad, then I have to recommend additional imaging. And, and that doesn't always necessarily correlate with the patient presentation. So like, I may make a recommendation that seems inappropriate to the clinician because I just don't have the, I don't have that, uh, the feedback from the patient. And so, so then I often can figure that out and realize that like, well, if I just had the patient here, I could just ask him this thing. So then, then I just have to say like clinical correlation is recommended in my report. Um, but that, not, that isn't always necessarily clear either then. So like, like sometimes I'll say like clinical correlation is recommended for this finding, but if the person reading that isn't necessarily sure what, what those differentials are or what they mean for the patient, then they're like, well, what do you mean? Like clinical, what do you mean clinically correlated? Like, how am I supposed to, like, it's not clear, you know? So, and then it's like, but then I don't, so like, then I have to decide in my report, like how much, how much do I say about how to clinically correlate this? Um, because I definitely, definitely don't want to be patronizing. Like I'm like, these are smart, educated people who are good at their job. And I don't want to like tell them like, Oh, well you should be doing this when they know that because then I just kind of look like arrogant or something. Um, so there's always, it's always just trying to strike the balance between being as helpful as possible without, without, um, missing something or just omitting something that potentially is significant, but then also not being overbearing and and forcing people's hand. Like if I make like a recommendation that like to get this imaging and then they don't get the imaging and something bad happens. Well, what does what does that mean for the clinician? Then they look bad or something. Um, but then again, if I recommend imaging and then they, yeah, they don't do it. Um, or they're kind of forced to do it then because they're like, well, if, if, if I miss something and I don't get this imaging, then I'm kind of liable because the radiologist said I should get this imaging. So, so it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of a scary world out there is what it comes down to, I guess. Um, it really is a tough balance, uh, because I think you're right that a lot of chiropractors are very confident. They just need that, uh, you know, that qualified chiropractic radiologist to confirm their mm-hmm. suspicions. But then I, I think a lot of chiropractors rely on the chiropractic radiologist. They look at the image and they say, something doesn't look right, but I have no idea what it is. And so I'm not even going to guess. I'm just going to lean on you to make mm-hmm. that decision for me. Um, and so that's that does seem to be a tough world to navigate and a lot of responsibility to take as a radiologist. Yeah. And, and I think all of us are more than happy to do that. I mean, when I look at a finding more often than not, like I, I don't, I can just say what it is. Um, so I would say on the whole, um, my job is extremely satisfying, but it's those few cases that kind of linger in your mind where you're like, did I, did I interpret that correctly? Did I make the right recommendation? Should I have not recommended anything? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm overcalling this. Maybe, uh, maybe I shouldn't be saying clinically correlate these things. Maybe I should, um, be recommending more specific tests and follow up. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a minority of cases, but you know, just, just as with anything, really, it's a minority of, of kind of frustrating things in our daily lives that, that bear, that weigh on our mind. Um, but yeah, on the whole, like I would say, uh, you know, going through the training that chiropractic radiologists go through, we come out the other side, um, feeling fairly objective and confident about interpreting, um, images, um, especially of the spine and extremities, which are our specialty. And, uh, and yeah, it's a very satisfying thing to be able to have someone send you a film and, um, be uncertain or have the patient be uncertain and kind of either, uh, put their mind at ease if it's, it's, if it's a benign finding, hopefully, but then if not, uh, making sure that they're having whatever finding, um, is present on the film be managed as, 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 uh, 
evidence-based and uh, quickly as possible. For those who are in school now that may be listening to this, are there any recommendations you can give for um, making that decision to image as well as uh, look for further imaging when necessary? Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, any imaging should be obtained with the intention of potentially changing the patient's care. So the ideal solution for patients is if they have imaging that it doesn't change their care because that means nothing's really that bad. Um, So when we get imaging and it's negative, like that's good for the patient, but we definitely shouldn't be ordering imaging when we're looking for something out of interest, but not necessarily out of saying, well, this exam could potentially push us to do something different. Um, so that's kind of the, the ultimate question we have to ask ourselves because sometimes like I'll be looking at an, an x-ray and they'll have some pathology, but if I can diagnose that pathology on the x-ray, I don't necessarily need the advanced imaging because advanced imaging, although it will give me more information about that pathology, it's not necessarily going to change the treatment of it. So, um, so yeah, so basically it just comes down to when you're ordering an exam, like what, what am I, what am I expecting to learn? And, and could this push me in a different direction? If the answer is no, then it's probably not a warranted exam. And if the answer is yes, like potentially it is. So like if you're just looking for osteophytes, right? Like how, how often have osteophytes changed your pattern of care? Because uh, if you see them in a certain location versus another, uh, you you could make the argument, well, that's going to push you where to adjust. But hopefully people are adjusting on what they find via their physical exam and palpation and not what they see on the image. So um, I don't think we should be adjusting based on where we find osteophytes. Um, it's my opinion. And so, so in those cases, the imaging doesn't really have the potential to change care because you're going to, you're going to treat what you find with your hands, not with, not with your eyes. So I had a patient recently and I do locum work. So I, I fill in, in different clinics. So this isn't my patient, but I, so it was the first time I was seeing them and, uh, healthy in general, they were just complaining of headaches and some stiffness and palpating their neck. It, it was very stiff. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, probably one of the stiffer necks that I've felt. Sure. And uh, I was curious. So I asked, have you ever had images? Mm-hmm. She said, no. I said, well, you don't need them, but I'd really be curious to see what's going on in there. Uh, mm-hmm. So I get the feeling that would not be a good indication for x-ray. Well, I don't know that that's necessarily true because you, you're you an experienced clinician and you were feeling something outside of the norm, right? So uh, I think that Clinically, sometimes those red flags aren't necessarily as objective as we'd like them to be. Like, there's not necessarily something specifically to point to saying, like, this is this is something specifically abnormal and I'm going to investigate this finding. But you're saying, like, you know, of the Gaussian distribution of necks I've felt, uh, you're on the extreme end of, of stiffness and, and um, p- presumably something's causing that stiffness. Um, so, you know, I guess if they don't have any other red flags, sure, fine to treat them uh but if they're not getting better and then, you know, that isn't an abnormal exam finding that, you know, is outside of the spectrum of normal um, from what your experience is. So I don't know. That's, that's entirely unjustified to get imaging in, in those type of patients where they're kind of um, substantially outside of the norm um, because any kind of extreme deviation from normal like that uh, is kind of a red flag in and of itself. Okay. You're also a very talented medical illustrator. And you've been doing these uh, digital and 3D illustrations. How did that all start? Thanks. Yeah, I uh, it kind of started out of a necessity of having an artistic outlet in residency. So my first year in residency, 
um, you know, it's kind of grueling uh, overall, but your first year is especially bad because um, you kind of have to be beaten down before you can be built back up. And, and, uh, and, you know, part of the things that I think everyone has when they're um, feeling like they're, they're incompetent or sometime somehow otherwise deficient um, is they have, they have outlets, right? So like whether that be social or artistic or whatnot, and mine, mine tends to be artistic. And, uh, but when you're in residency, you don't really have time to have an artistic outlet. Uh, so, um, my artistic outlet then just became, I've, I've always been kind of dabbling in Photoshop. So I, I had kind of the technology background in using the software to generate the illustrations, but I'd never actually done an illustration. So, um, so I just kind of started making diagrams, the thing I was studying. Um, and then, you know, whenever you do those diagrams and especially when they're medical like that, uh, and you're kind of a newer, younger doctor or student, um, you're not necessarily certain how accurate that is. So then I would put them online and get people's feedback. And, um, one of the first people's feedback I got was from a guy named Roland Talano. And, uh, he's a radiologist who owns a couple different sites. And, uh, he was like, Oh, like, you know how to make diagrams. That's really cool. Uh, I wonder if you could do a diagram like this. And then he sends me some crazy like Netter style diagram when I had just sent like a line diagram. <laughs> and then, yeah. So the me being the person I am, I was like, well, that's like crazy, but I can't do that. No, but maybe I could. So let, let me try and figure it out. So I went, I went that I, uh, I got permission from my wife to go spend, uh, a hundred dollars buying an illustration tablet. Um, which when you're a poor resident living on peanuts, it's kind of a big expense. Um, but but I got it and uh, started playing around with it and, and realized, yeah, I actually, I, can, I, can't, I can't paint that well now, but maybe I could with some practice. So I, you know, any, and with anything, like a small amount of time over a small amount of time investment over a long period of time results in a, quite a substantial change in your skill level. So um, yeah, so just over the years, I've kind of uh, honed the craft and uh, still like learning massive amounts all the time about illustration, but um, it, yeah, it just kind of all came out of having having to need an artistic outlet, um, and then uh, kind of getting then the social interaction and benefit of interacting with people who are um, using and and uh, requesting diagrams. I'm browsing on Radiopedia, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is I think one of the uh, uh, the greatest resources for students as well as clinicians uh, on all things radiology, and it has grown over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I first heard about it when I was in school, and now it's it's really uh, become useful. And uh, for the listeners, you can go and, and look up um, Dr. Skulski's uh, profile there and find all of the images. Um, one here on diffuse axonal injury, uh, one on a diagram of the talus. Uh, real, I mean, really high quality, and they do resemble Netter's illustrations. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, whenever I get compared to Netter, it's kind of like butterflies, you know, when you're someone someone that you look to is like like an idol almost. Like, you know, every person goes through school and uses that textbook. Um, and, and we just kind of, and that's the standard reference. Like, we don't even think about it. You know, it's like, oh, I need to look up a piece of anatomy. Let's go look at Netter, you know. And so to be to be compared to that level of success and um, esteem uh, is, is very flattering. Certainly my body of work just pales in comparison to his, and I'm not sure it will ever be as big as his because he was a full-time illustrator for the majority of his life. Um, but, but even just the artistic side of it, I mean, he was a great artist and, uh, yeah. And it's interesting cause I don't really consider myself an artist per se. Uh, I know a lot of people would say I am. And, uh, and I guess at some level I have to accept that I am because I am making art. 
uh, but there's a difference. Someone made a quote to me once, um, and I'm trying to remember it now, is that there there is a difference between being an artist and being a um, uh, or an artisan and being a craftsman, right? So a craftsman, mm-hmm. a craftsman is extremely good at what they do, but they're not necessarily creating something new or 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 conveying an idea that hasn't been thought before, and that's artistry, I, I think. So. I think a lot of what I do is I'm really good at moving pixels around in Photoshop. And I can and I, I think that's part of the craftsman. Like I'm a very good at the craft of Photoshop. And uh every once in a while I'll have an artistic thought and I'll do something artistic with a medical diagram. But on the whole, I feel like I'm really just being a craftsman. I'm being, I'm mastering a software and I'm using it to convey anatomy and anatomy, you know, anatomy is anatomy. It's not really not a lot of room for artistic interpretation. Um and so I think the majority of what I do is being a craftsman. It's not necessarily being an artist, but definitely having the ability to determine lighting and color because I've obviously color I, I, I use liberally in illustrations like cartilages and blue. Um, and I always make it blue so it stands out next to the bone because cartilage is actually not that different color from bone um, and things like that. So yeah, there's definitely an artistic component to what I do. Um, and and yeah, it's flattering for people to appreciate the art- artistry of, of my work. Um but it is kind of interesting when when you're just doing it for kind of these utilitarian purposes. Like, I want to teach this piece of anatomy. I'm going to make a diagram to show it. Uh, my my mindset going into it isn't that artistic, but the artistry just kind of happens um, by by the nature of what it is. Well, much of it is utilitarian, but some of it is just downright fun. And yeah, for I, sure. I, I did browse a little bit uh, just for your name and came across a little Etsy shop. Do you mind if I if I mention that? Oh yeah, go ahead. And you've got some illustrations here of <laughs> of stormtrooper X-rays yeah. uh, and other illustrations uh, of baby announcements, which <laughs> very anatomically correct. Oh, so thanks. I think that one that one's very uh, very fun as well. Um, but not only that, I, I remember about a month ago, or I guess we're still in April, the beginning of the month. Radiopedia had an article. Uh, and I have to imagine that you were involved in this. Yeah. Um, you're talking about the April Fool's joke, yeah? Yeah, the yeah. April Fool's joke. Uh, the internet is going crazy over these Apple Eye x-rays. <laughs> yeah, so um, when I started with Radiopedia, because of my Photoshop skills, they kind of, uh, they had done one year previously of the April Fool's joke, um, which they actually got me on, embarrassingly. Um, I'm, I'm very gullible. The uh, They kind of asked me, like, hey, you want to do the you want to do the April Fool's this year? And I think at that point, it wasn't quite so huge as it is now. Um, so I whipped something up and then and then it was really popular. Um, and of course, there was dialogue that happens and people like are like, okay, change this, do this. And when those people are like world-renowned experts in their field, it tends to be pretty convincing. Um, but yeah, these Apple Eye X-ray ones was interesting. Uh, I didn't have a lot of time this year because we just had a baby and uh, I kind of put it off the oh, last congratulations. minute. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, so I, I was trying to think of things I could do quickly with minimal time investment. And I was like, well, I could just add a piece of hardware on imaging. And so we kind of brainstorming what to do. And I don't know if you've seen um, the show Black Mirror, uh, but they have an episode where they have eye implants and they can play back their lives and stuff and it becomes controversial. Um, and so they kind of tackled that concept. And I was like, well, like, let's let's make people think this is real. And I, I uh, so yeah, so we and we're like, well, how could how could we make this funny? Because it should ultimately like people should get a laugh out of this. Um, so like, yeah, well, let's slap an Apple logo on it. Like it's a pretty recognizable thing and satire is protected under copyright. So, um, 
so yeah so th- and then we were we previously when we had done them we we upload that we do a case that's just like a like here's a case study look at this image it's an interesting case that we can learn from and this one we did more as like a blog post like we wanted to pretend that some there was some slip up that a radiology resident posted this on social media and then everyone on twitter was going crazy so i made up fake tweets and photoshop of the different editors and i just kind of made up <laughs> fake names and um one of the guys one of the editors it's funny because among the editors our favorite thing about that whole write-up was the tweet by uh henry Cusmith <laughs> because his his name is his real name he's one of the managing editors for radiopedia is henry knipe and you actually pronounce the k so it's not it's not a oh really oh, yeah just... so so it's a joke because it's like why do you pronounce the k and so, so I just made it Smith, uh, just, just the joke and, and everyone got a kick out of that. So, um, yeah, yeah it's pretty whole... fun this year. I think we only got like 500,000 hits on Facebook this year, which sounds like a lot, but last year we got over 5 million. Really? Yeah. So, um, so I don't know if we're going to continue with, with the blog post format and maybe go back to the regular case or I have a, a secret idea. I'm not going to divulge here, um, for next year's April Fool's. Um, which hopefully will get the numbers back up because I, I feel bad when people are, are missing out on the, on this kind of, uh, event of being fooled on one day a year in something very nerdy like this. It, I think it's become more of a, a hobby to see who gets fooled, fooled by these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly posted this everywhere. Uh, oh, did you? <laughs> well, I mean, any, th- I'm a huge Apple fan. Sure. My wife gets on me all the time. Um, and anything with Apple and X-ray, I mean, yep, I'm going to click yeah. on it. And it, it's a nod to the the real story back uh, probably three or four years ago when Apple's uh, new iPhone, uh, I believe it was the, I want to say it was like the Model 4, 4S, okay. uh, that was found in a bar. Mm. And so photos were posted of it. This is the new design and this is all the tech specs. And, I remember that, yeah. Um, but also it is really fun with all the names. You've got Frank Glio glioblasman yeah like so glioblastoma he's a neuroradiologist yeah mm -hmm. andrea dicom uh dicom the imaging reading software that you can get yeah jeremy jejunum (laughs) yeah yeah he's a peds radiologist so he does a lot of abdominal stuff and you got tweeted by donald trump apparently yeah 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 we you know well the most famous bad tweeter of all time so you had to throw that in there yeah that was really hilarious thanks yeah i uh my funny my i was the first tweet i think in that in that blog and uh it's my name it says matthew sealskin because apple corrects um skalski to sealskin so oh i was wondering what that was about yeah 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 that's why that one is because uh oftentimes when when um my wife sends me something from her phone or ipad it'll she'll say like sign it off melissa skalski and it always gets chained to melissa sealskin sealskin (laughs) well that's great it's a good uh inside joke there yeah i don't um, know if you saw last year's april fools uh we got a little bit of um kickback from uh especially me from chiropractors because it was criticizing the paleo diet <laughs> which was kind of the oh, point of it we, we we wanted the rage so uh, we got it yeah the rage is what sells online oftentimes i'm sure i saw it but i'm not re- recalling it right now so yeah so it was um we called it um paleo induced mineral periostitis so it was uh it was these kind of like little tangential or uh, perpendicular projections of periosteal new bone which look like kind of like spines on a cactus in in someone's hand um oh, so, yes 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 yeah so it was like oh these kind of people are want to eat like neolithic people and they're, they're eating rocks or they're doing something weird um and so yeah i i it's funny because when we do these cases like oftentimes i'll come up with the idea and i'll do like a sketch up of it and say uh, i think this would be like an attractive social media post 
and uh and then we kind of work on the backstory and so i'll often write what i think the backstory should be and then usually the the backstory that wins out is uh one of our uh, managing editors named andrew dixon he's a pretty hilarious guy he will um he'll usually he'll usually take over and say something way funnier than anyone else and so we tend to go with that but um yeah so so my initial story with that one was that people were like confused about um paleolithic man and thought they had gizzards or something and so they're eating rocks to digest grains with their gizzard or something like that and that's why they're all these minerals were depositing in their periosteum causing this like cactus hand type of appearance um i don't i can't recall specifically what we went with but i'm pretty sure it wasn't that uh yeah cactus disease paleoindus mineral periostitis um and you have images of cave drawings with cuevas de las manos mm-hmm yeah uh, so we always like to give some type of historical reference so the year before we had a da vinci painting that i i modified to match the pathology and things like that that's excellent i love it thanks yeah it helps a little bit (laughs) yeah well it is just realistic enough to get people to think that it might be true yeah we always want people by the end of if they read the the case discussion we want by the end of it to then be pretty sure it's an april fool's joke and then all the links linked to something april fools if you click on them so uh so yeah so it's if we try to kind of start semi-convincing and then get progressively more ridiculous as it goes on well i don't want to take up all your time but i do want to um talk about a few things that may interest students in particular Mm -hmm. Uh, radiology is for many people one of the more difficult topics to study in chiropractic school what tips can you give uh, for students when they're studying radiology how to get the most out of it and how to uh, understand the images the best. Yeah, that's a, it's a big question. Um, and certainly one that we need to think about. Um, and it, by nature, radiology is a visual thing. So visual learners have an advantage. Um, and so certainly uh, people who aren't visual learners or don't learn best visually have, have, they can, they struggle quite a bit. And uh, with radiology, when we're interpreting images, so maybe the lab side of radiology in chiropractic school, uh, it really comes down to volume. So the more x-rays you look at, the better you're going to be looking at x-rays. So it, looking at a lot of images um, helps. So resources like Radiopedia, Learning Radiology, uh, there's a few other ones out there. Uh, getting on those and saying, like, like I misinterpret this pathology every time. I'm going to go look at 50 cases of that. Uh, that's something I think that everyone should be doing uh, who who can't um extrapolate from like one image to the next who need who need that extra volume um and even people who are good at it because really um our confidence comes down to our experience so the more experience you have the more confident you're going to be making those decisions um and so that's that's kind of like the interpretation side of it but then kind of more the academic side of it um is you know making flashcards you know just the usual strategies um because it's a lot of volume and so i think that part of the problem people struggle with in chiropractic school in general is because it's such a such an extensive curriculum in such a short period of time as there's just a ton of volume so you have to be really diligent about making sure you're organized and and have dedicated time to sit down um, and memorize things because there's a lot of memorization radiology because it's just a lot you know there's a ton of anatomy you have to know um, that maybe you haven't thought about uh, since anatomy class Um, maybe there's some new anatomy that you didn't learn in anatomy class and then there's all of the all of the the imaging terms that are specific to imaging um mm-hmm. like and 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 just spending time with those words and familiarizing yourself with them uh is, is kind of a critical thing so i think people often fall into the trap of thinking of it like other courses where 
um, maybe the information isn't quite so foreign and so they don't necessarily need to spend as much time as they really need to uh, as they really need so sitting down with the material and and identifying your areas of deficiency and your your deficits in cognition um, are something that's important because we often with with other things we often have like a very diverse background of experiences in our life that we can pull from to help us kind of solidify knowledge and you know form connections between things and make it the threshold of committing them to memory a little less because they're related to these other things we have experience with and radiology is just foreign enough that that often isn't the case for people um so yeah so definitely it definitely does demand a little bit more of a time investment um from a studying standpoint when you don't uh have experiences that you can tie to what you're learning one of the things that i have found was very helpful is self-quizzing and so that's looking at images when you don't necessarily know what it is yeah uh, and when i would use radiopedia i believe i know I, i'm curious if this has changed but you would choose say um fiber dysplasia or whatever the uh, type of lesion you're looking for would be and you mm-hmm. could you could find a whole uh playlist and so it would find all the cases with that diagnosis and you could cycle through them yeah. uh, but is there a way to do that or to to mix say certain uh, similar diagnoses together to be able to go through them and quiz yourself. Yeah, so there's a couple different options. So the quiz mode is kind of a mode that will just rent, select random cases and you can specify a category or something, but it's not super well organized because it's just an algorithm. So having finding a playlist that someone has created, like a user defined playlist, is is often best. And if there one doesn't exist that fits your needs, creating your own. And so there is a then you are creating the playlist so you know what's in it. Um, so then you have to make it either um, long enough or or not look at it long enough to forget what's in that playlist um, before you quiz yourself with it. But um, yeah, definitely like I did that a lot as a resident. And um, and I think as I, this is only my second term teaching at Palmer, so I've been kind of um, just keeping my head above water. But once I have a little bit of surplus time, I want to create a bunch of these playlists for people to be able to go through and self-quiz themselves because definitely... Uh, I agree with you. That is the best form of learning um, because you you make a decision about the image um, and then you find out if you're right or wrong. And then if you're wrong, you can reflect on on, on what led you to that incorrect, incorrect conclusion. So, um, so yeah, that, anyone can create a playlist in Radiopedia. Uh, so you can just create an account. You don't have to you don't have to do anything on the site if you don't, if you don't have anything to contribute or, or anything like that. Uh, but but anyone can create an account and, and begin collecting cases into a playlist. So there's a, let me just go over here and on my computer and open up Radiopedia to make sure I'm saying how to go about this correctly. So I'm just going to open up a random case. Oh, osteochondroma, look at that. Um, so you, if you click on uh, add to, so in the top right of every case, uh, there is an add to button and then you can add it to a playlist. And so you can add it to a new playlist or one that exists. And so you can just go through and go through and look at different cases and find them via articles or just via the search bar, add them to a playlist, and then you can progress through that playlist um, kind of in, a, in the quiz mode format um, by just going to your playlist. So uh, that's the people who are going to take the time to do that are, are going to be so far ahead of everyone else that, uh, that yeah, it's definitely going to result in, in not only a better grade in the course, but certainly being a more competent clinician and um, interpreter of images. And, uh, but that definitely that takes time, right? So if you're, if you don't have that time, uh, it, it becomes difficult. That's, I think what a lot of people run into is that, uh, they're pulled in a lot of different directions with their time and time is kind mm-hmm. of a fixed ever, ever, uh, disappearing thing. Um, so it's just prioritizing your time and making sure that you are giving, um, time 
that, that you need to master the subject because one interesting podcast or a TED talk, I don't know if you watch many TED talks, but I, I tend to try and watch a couple a week and I watched this really super interesting one about, about mastery, right? So we talk about like mastering a subject and the, the one of the really good points that this TED um, speaker said was that uh, given enough time, nearly 100% of people could na- master nearly 100% of topics. So, so, so like math, for example, was the example he gave, like people think I'm either good at math or I'm not good at math and I have no potential to master this. But um, if you think of like language, for example, and, and reading and writing, you know, in the early like 19th century, if you would have asked someone like what percentage of people do you think can learn to read? Like they would have said like maybe 10%, you know, like the, the reading was a rare thing um, and it was considered like for the elite. And once we decided as a society that uh, reading and writing was something that uh, we should master and and kind of forced everyone to learn it. Um, everyone did learn it, right? So like 100, nearly 100% of people can read and write now. And uh, not everyone learns it at the same rate, of course, but by the time, you know, we reach, you know, early adolescence, basically everyone can read and write. And uh, I think radiology is the same way. Like 100% of people can become excellent radiologists. It's just whether or not they set their set themselves up and give themselves enough time to do it. Dr. Scalsi, for those students who may be interested in radi- radiology, uh, any words of advice to them pursuing that uh, diplomat or the residency training? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I, the, the main thing of people who, the advice I give people who want to pursue radiology is um, you have to be passionate about it. You can't just, so your motivation for doing it has to be that you're passionate about radiology. And you have to want it bad enough that you're, willing to make sacrifices for it because it is a big sacrifice you you it requires so much of your time for such an extended period of time more than chiropractic school um, that you kind of have to push aside other priorities so your priority can't be um can't be elsewhere so you can't have like family priorities or these other things distracting you um because the time that is required just won't be there uh you have to it's just like we were just talking about um it come it really comes down to time and so uh so if 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 you are passionate about enough to make the sacrifice of time um then definitely def- definitely pursue it and um and you're gonna have to move for the mo- for most places uh, unless your school has a residency program um and so so often part of that dedication has to be willing to relocate and uh, some places as e- easier than others of moving to LA from being a, a Midwestern uh, kid uh, wasn't easy for me because my cost of living went up dramatically um, and, and the, my income as a resident wasn't dramatically higher. Uh, so so there are there are other sacrifices even besides time um, that, that need to be considered. So uh, but yeah, if you're if you look at those things and say, I'm willing to make that sacrifice, then yeah, you're passionate enough and you can be successful, I think. So that's, that's my main thing is just being, having a little self-reflection and where your priorities are and, and what's your ultimate goal. So like if you do a radiology, going into radiology residency, if your ultimate goal um, is like sports chiropractic, well, maybe you would be better served by a sports chiropractic residency because um, certainly the sports residents where I did my residency did rotations with us. So they got a fair amount of imaging. So um, I think just knowing what your priorities are, where you, where do you see yourself in five to 10 years and being very objective about what your goals in life are. Uh, is going to be the most important thing. Um, but then, then, so say you decide to pursue it, what's the next step? 
um, well, making sure you master what you cover in chiropractic school because you have to have that base level of knowledge going into residency because you're going to be responsible for teaching chiropractic students, among other things, or interpreting images and things like that. Uh, so uh, preparing for interviews is um, something that's important, making sure that all of the knowledge you gain in chiropractic school is is working knowledge and uh, making sure that you're uh, presenting yourself in a way that you uh, convey that passion when you're in your interview process, I think are all important things. And I should have brought it up earlier, but you not only did your residency in Southern California, but you also did a one-year research fellowship at the University of Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. So when the when you start your residency at SCU, um, you also begin a rotation uh, for four hours every Friday uh, at the LA County Hospital, um, which is staffed by USC radiologists. And that's an amazing experience because you um, get to spend four hours in a hospital uh, in a working reading room, watching them interpret everything from the rheumatology clinic to the ER, uh, orthopedic, post-surgical follow-up. And so you get this extremely rich experience. Um, and I think that's one of the one of the benefits of the residency there uh, that maybe isn't necessarily a, 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 the experience that you get at all the residencies. Certainly all residencies have their um, strength and weaknesses, but that is like a, a huge unparalleled strength in that residency. And I was fortunate enough in my time uh, in that rotation to um, get to know some of the radiologists there. And because of my medical illustration background, they uh, wanted to involve me in some of the research they did. And that kind of just... Um, led to those relationships kind of blossoming. And, and through those relationships, I was able to secure a, uh, a research fellowship position there. Um, yeah, which was a year long. So it was like all musculoskeletal MRI. Um, and I was at the, I was then at the Keck hospital instead of the County hospital for the most part. Um, it was an unpaid position, unfortunately. So I had to live a year without salary, which I was fortunate enough to be able to do because my wife's a saint. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was a, that was a really good experience. Um, definitely improved my ability to interpret musculoskeletal MRI um, and, and uh, all MRI for that matter. Um, and then also, you know, having a better understanding of procedures, the different decision-making process for different surgeries, because as part of that fellowship, you do rotations, uh, not necessarily rotations, but you have, uh, conferences with other specialties. So every Tuesday morning, we would have this thing called tumor board where we'd get together with the orthopedic oncologists and the med oncologists and the radiation oncologists and all of this big heterogeneous group of people and discuss the challenging cases that week. Um, what the surgical approaches were, uh, what different diagnostic methods need to be done pre-surgically, um, all of these kind of uh, different considerations. How are they going to be radiated afterwards? What complications are going to be expected? What what type of what are the goals of treatment? All of these things that aren't necessarily something that we think about in chiropractic a lot, but often our patients are thinking about it, and and uh, I think that definitely improved my ability to have those conversations. If my sources are correct, this fellowship that you did, this was the first time there's been a chiropractic radiologist in that position. Is that right? Uh, at that institution, yeah. There's been a number of um, chiropractic radiologists who did a, a fellowship with uh, in San Diego with Donald Resnick um, at UC San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, and so certainly I'm not the first person um, to do this. I don't know how similar my experience was to theirs or how different... Um, but uh, yeah, it's definitely not a common thing. Only a, only a tiny percentage of even DAC bars, which are a small field to begin with, um, have done this. Uh, the more common fellowship that DAC bars do is an ultrasound fellowship. So there's some formal ultrasound fellowships like at Logan um, Chiropractic College. 
there's a it's where you spend a, a year instead of doing mri you're doing ultrasound and so i think that's probably a little bit more relevant to the daily practice of a chiropractor because um ultrasound is more accessible it's cheaper right so an ultrasound unit is going to run you like twenty to thirty thousand dollars for a musculoskeletal unit versus you know multi-million dollars for an mri and certainly like we look at mris a lot because patients bring them to us and they're getting these mris done but being able to do an ultrasound exam in your clinic when you own the equipment and interpret it um there is is a huge benefit so i think uh, one of the the people i know doing this aaron welk he works in a chiropractic clinic and he's ultrasounding people all day long and the benefit of ultrasound is that it is a cross-sectional imaging modality that gives us some resolution of the soft tissues and the ability to diagnose them when we couldn't otherwise but then it's also a dynamic exam so a lot of a lot of the complaints we see in chiropractic aren't necessarily static anatomic deformities that we can see on on our static modalities right so like um mri typically isn't a dynamic modality we're not doing um, movement of the patient, um, kind of trying to reproduce the symptoms while we're doing the exam, which is one of the limitations of it. But for, when we're doing ultrasound, like say, for example, like you have a popping in your elbow and you can put the ultrasound probe there and see like, is your ulnar nerve snapping uh, over your medial epicondyle, things like that. So it's a much more functional um, chiropractic practical type of uh, exam, I think. So I think uh, that's going to become, um, as we move forward, probably uh, a, a very popular thing within um, the DAC bar community and chiropractic as a whole is using um, diagnostic ultrasound uh, to help our patients um, and and figure out what's going on with them. I've been uh, paying attention to this a little bit lately because this is the diagnostic musculoskeletal ultrasound, which is different than say what a pregnant mother would go get uh, to view the fetus. Uh, but it's being used more widely. The Olympics now, I think they just came out with the paper where they're using it, the Olympic team. Um, and recently saw a couple devices that you can just buy online and connect to your phone. And so you not not sure if that's diagnostic quality, but again, just the portability of it. So you can have this mobile device that pairs with your cell phone or iPad, and you can view the image right there as you're working with the patient. Yeah, certainly the portability um, of ultrasound is is a huge benefit for sideline diagnosis, bedside diagnosis, or you know just in your clinic. Um, and I know there are some limitations to those more uh, kind of um, iPhone hookup units. Um, I'm not I'm not sure uh, all of what those are. I'm not yeah I'm not a, a fellowship trained uh, stenographer um, like some of some of our, my my colleagues are um, who could speak to that more um, thoroughly than I could. Um, but definitely, uh, those things are out there and, and presumably um, are, are, are being used. And I'm not sure exactly what the musculoskeletal applications are for it or how good they are. Um, but it'd be interesting to see how those, how those type of technologies are going to change practice going forward and, and, and even our scope as a profession because, um, you know, I think having x-ray available to us um, was a huge uh, benefit to the profession and i think going forward um ultrasound is going to be kind of the next major re- revolution in in our scope of practice and, and using that to diagnose musculoskeletal disorders and then go on to treat those and show that we're actually me- making change right so ultrasound um kind of correlation with treatment change i think will be an interesting avenue of research uh, in the future of chiropractic well you've certainly had an amazing journey so far i'm looking forward to see more great things come from you uh if you were to do it all over again, do you think you'd choose the same path? Yeah, I, I don't think there's a single day that I regret what I do. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be able to like wake up every morning and be happy to go to my job. And if I wasn't going to go to my job, I would still want to be doing that job. 
Um, certainly when I'm, when I have free time, um, I'm doing radiology things like radiopedia now because not, not, I'm not no longer using it so much as an avenue for broadening my knowledge base, but contributing to the, you know, the world's resource of, of learning online. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I enjoy education. I enjoy radiology. And I think, uh, that's something that, that passion hasn't, has grown stronger, if anything, throughout my, my short time now as a radiologist. Um, so, uh, I don't think there's, there's nothing I would, I look back on and, and regret doing, um, in my background. I love chiropractic. I'm glad I'm in this field and I'm glad I'm in the radiology field. And, you know, I kind of have like the, I think I have the, I think I have the best job on earth. So <laughs> I, uh, I don't know that many people can say that. If students would like to find out more about you, where can they find you online? So yeah, I have a couple different websites. I have um, my personal website, which is mskalski.com that has a link to my t-shirts and has some of my medical illustration stuff when people want to pay me to do illustrations. I've done some work from chiropractors doing like 3D modeling and kind of uh, more video type stuff showing different postural exercises and whatnot. Um, and so some of that stuff's in there. My photography is on my personal website. So if you want to look at some of my photography landscape work, you can find it on there. Um, the, the, the clinic actually at Southern California university health sciences is like, um, they bought a bunch of my art. So I feel like when I walk in there, it's my own private art gallery that I got paid for. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So, uh, yeah, so that's kind of, that was a really cool feeling. And, uh, so that stuff's on my uh, personal website, mskalski.com, no period or hyphen or anything, just M and then S K A L S K I.com. My uh, practice website is skalski radiology.com. And so that's where people can, um, sign up to be clients and get my, get my opinion on, on their images. Um, and usually I try and turn around images within 24 hours. So um, if you have, if you, if you need to read, I'm, I'm willing to do it and take your money. <laughs> and, uh, and so those are my, those are my two websites. Um, and yeah, that's, that's a majority of my, my, my website stuff. I do have a Twitter page. If anyone wants to follow me, I tweet radiology stuff mostly. Every once in a while I'll retweet some sci-fi stuff. Uh, but yeah, that's my, my Twitter handle is Doc Skelsky. So at Doc Skelsky. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then, you know, I don't, there's no way to really subscribe to me on Radiopedia, but you can always keep an eye on there and see, see what I'm doing. Um, to find my profile, if you just scroll to the bottom of the Radiopedia page, you can find a tiny little link in the bottom right hand corner that says editors. Um, and so if you click on there, um, I'm one of the manage or, uh, one of the senior editors for the site. So I'm in the, the fourth row down. So then if you go to view my profile, you can see the, the cases I've submitted, the illustrations I've done. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my presence online. It's been great talking to you all. I'll have links to all of those places to find you in the show notes so that students can uh, start following you and learn more about radiology. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. It's been great. Thanks for listening to another episode. Please don't forget to leave an iTunes review of five stars and head on over to patreon.com to contribute to the podcast so that I can continue bringing you awesome interviews with chiropractors and chiropractic students. Head over to patreon.com slash exploring chiropractic.